Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and this week's message is from our series titled Kingdom Come. Today, we're going to be studying Ezekiel chapters 46 through 48 with Kurt Katsorki. Kurt, is there anything we need to know as we get into these chapters today? Today, we're going to cover the final three chapters of Ezekiel and finish the book. As we do so, think about your daily interactions with God and how He might be calling you to more and deeper relationship with Him. All right. Well, that's a lot of, lot of good news and different things going on there. Uh, I'm going to pick up in Ezekiel chapter 46. Um, we're going to finish the book of Ezekiel this morning. So we're going to look at chapter 46, 47, and 48. Uh, when I shared with someone last week that we were going to be finishing the book of Ezekiel, they said, oh, thank God. Um, and uh, maybe you feel that way too. But uh, what we're going to do, we're going to wrap this up this week, and then we will um, um, we'll do a, a four-week series uh, looking at mental health. And so we're going to look at how the, what the scripture says about how we can keep our minds in the right place. Maybe you're struggling with, with uh, anxiety or depression or something along those lines. Maybe you know somebody who is. Uh, we really hope that this series would be something that would uh, kind of point you towards Jesus and give you hope, um, but that would also uh, be something, if you're, if you're not in that space of, of, of uh, struggling with mental health, that you have some tools to help the people around you who are. Um, and so that will be the goal behind that. Uh, this morning in these final tra- uh, three chapters of Ezekiel, 46, 47, and 48, I'm going to go through chapter 46 with some degree of detail. Uh, I'll read it with you, and then I'm going to give you an overview of chapter 47 and 48. Now, the last time I did an overview in Ezekiel, I covered seven chapters in, in one morning, and uh, then somebody left the church the following week. Um, and, and I just want you to know that when we teach from the Bible, um, there's... We're 99% of the time, we're going to go line by line, verse by verse, right? Line by line, verse by verse. But there's a time and a place for here a little, there a little, precept upon precept, okay? Um, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do a little bit of both. So I'll give you, I'll give you line by line for a chapter, and then I'm going to give you the big picture uh, of what's going on in Ezekiel chapter 47 and 48. Um, and, and just so you guys understand, the church has done this for millennia. And in fact, the, the synagogues did it as well. There were times where they would go line by line, and there are times where they would go precept on precept and they'd give you a big overview of what is, how do we see this woven throughout the Bible? Um, and so that's what I'm going to do a little bit of both of those things this morning. Um, so if, if you struggle with, uh, with overviews, just stick with me. Uh, we'll get through it and uh, don't leave the church um, because of it. Uh, let's see though, covering the, the final three chapters of Ezekiel today, as we've gone through these chapters, uh, 40 through 48, uh, what we're talking about during this time is we're, an understanding we're talking about a future time when Jesus returns at his second coming and he sets up his millennial rule. Okay. We call it the millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign. Um, there are those in Christianity, respected brothers and sisters who look at these passages and they look at them from an allegorical perspective. And so they say, this isn't some future time, but it's actually an allegory of different things that have happened throughout time. Um, we don't hold that view at Hilltop, and that's, that's okay. There's some differences in how Christians view the scripture here. But Don and I have approached this from a uh, historical, grammatical, uh, literal sense that we're looking at these verses. And so um, this is, we're looking forward. Ezekiel is picturing a future time from us where Jesus, the Messiah, returns um, and he rules and reigns the Jewish people from Jerusalem. Um, And as we've gone through this, uh, we've seen a handful of different things. One is that God gathers the people back into the city. He rebuilds the walls. He rebuilds the temple. Uh, The whole thing is set up all over again. The sacrificial system is put back in in place, which confuses a lot of people. I thought Jesus died once for all. He did. The sacrifices are pointing back to what Jesus has done. Um, But uh, as we go through this, what I want to do is I want to show you uh, that there are portions 
portions of this that we can then apply to our lives, okay? So there are spiritual principles that are woven through these chapters that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be challenged and encouraged to apply them to our lives. And so that's what we'll do. I'm going to read, like I said, I'll read chapter 46, and I'll give you an overview of 47 and 48. Um, before we do that, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll dig in. So, Father, this morning we come to your word uh, seeking to understand you. Uh, we understand, uh, God, that in the scriptures you have given us a picture of who you are. Uh, you have revealed your character to us. And in the passages we're looking at this morning, you've also revealed how you long to have relationship with us. And so we're going to be talking about how, God, we can worship you. Uh, this idea of, of giving honor and ascribing the, the highest worth to you. How do we do that? Not just through song, but with our lives. How do we do that? And then we're going to talk, God, also about what you have in mind for your church, your gathering of people, that we would come together and that we would worship you together and then that we would scatter across uh, the land that we live in here and that you would use us for your glory. And so I, I pray that that would be very clear to us. Uh, I also pray for those who don't yet know you that are either watching online or with us this morning, God, that if they haven't entered into a saving faith with you, that they would get a picture uh, of what it is to really know the God of the Bible and to have relationship with you. And I pray uh, that the spirit of God, that your father, your spirit uh, would be working in all of our lives to draw us closer to you. And I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So the, the question on your handout there is, is how does worshiping Jesus transform you from stagnant in life uh, to being a life-giving member of God's kingdom? How does worshiping him do that? And so we're essentially going to cover two important teachings or doctrines in Christianity. First is the doctrine of worship, and I'm not talking about worship simply through song. Um, when we go through this passage, you'll see that worship shows up in the sacrifice of material goods. It shows up in proper priorities. It shows up in seeking relationship with God. It shows up in a just or upright life lifestyle that we would actually worship God with the way that we live. Uh, worship shows up in honoring God's designs, living in his blessings, enjoying his presence in our lives, and then sharing all of that and all of him with someone else. And so worship is certainly something that we do through song, but more, far more importantly, it's something that we do with our lives. Okay, And so that's what Ezekiel is going to draw out. The second doctrine or teaching is what you could call the doctrine of the ecclesia. In the Greek, uh, that, that's the word that is translated church. Okay, uh, The ecclesia means the gathering of citizens called out of their homes and into a public space. Jesus said that he would build his church or ecclesia and the, and the gates of Hades would not overpower it. So Jesus said that he would build a kingdom of people who would be called out of their homes into a public gathering space to worship him, acknowledge him for who he is, and then be scattered back into their homes and into their communities to influence the world around them. Uh, that is the upside down kingdom that Jesus set up in his first coming, that he would call us out of our homes into a gathering where we would be, where we would worship him and be transformed through that worship. And then through the transformation of our lives, we would scatter into the communities around us and influence, really subvert the kingdom of this world and draw people into relationship with him. And so these are two really important things. Today's message is on the purpose of the worship gathering and the scattering of God's people. That's what we're going to look at. And so as we talk about the word doctrine, doctrine matters, but not just for the formation of doctrine or right teaching, but for transformation, right? Doctrine matters because in believing the right thing and having the right thinking, we can experience the transformation that God longs to, to, 
to create in our lives. Without right teaching and without right doctrine, we will not experience the transformation that God has in mind. And so these things are very important to us. So let's form a proper view of why we gather and then why we scatter. That's what we want to do this morning. So in Ezekiel's time, what he's doing, and if you, if you don't have a Bible, you can, you can use one in, on your phone or these ones in your pew. You can turn to page 778. Um, and uh, what we're going to look at here, the first 10 verses. So we see, he says this. He says, this is what the Lord God says. The gate of the inner court that faces east is to be closed during the six days of work, but it will be opened on the Sabbath day and on the day of the new moon. And so there's this gate leading into the worship space. And uh, there are other gates that are open throughout the week. But this one, he says, I only want you to open it on the Sabbath and on the day of the new moon. The prince should enter from the outside by the way of the gate's portico and stand at the gate's doorpost while the priests offer excuse me, while the priests sacrifice his burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He will bow in worship at the gate's threshold and then depart, but the gate is not to be closed until the evening. The people of the land will also bow in worship before the Lord at the entrance of the gate on Sabbaths and new moons. The burnt offering uh, that the prince presents to the Lord on the Sabbath day is to be six unblemished lands, lambs and an unblemished ram. The grain offering will be half a bushel with a ram and the grain offering with the lambs will be whatever he wants to give as well as a gallon of oil for every half bushel. On the day of the new moon, the burnt offering is to be a young unblemished bull as well as six lambs and a ram without blemish. blemish. He will provide a grain offering of half a bushel with the bull, half a bushel with the ram, and whatever he can afford with the lambs together with a gallon of oil for every half bushel. A lot of material goods being sacrificed to God here. When the prince enters, he is to go by the way of the gate's portico and go out the same way. When the people of the land land come before the Lord at the appointed times, whoever enters by the way of the north gate is to worship and go out by the way of the south gate. And whoever enters by the way of the south gate is to go out by the way of the north gate. He doesn't want them to have digestive problems. Um, one may return through the gate by which, one, one, no one may return through the gate by which he entered, but is to go out by the opposite gate. When the people enter, the prince will enter with them, and when they leave, he will leave. At the festivals and appointed times, the grain offering will be half a bushel with a bull and half a bushel with a ram, and whatever he wants to give with the lambs, along with a gallon of oil for every half bushel. Okay. So you have all these very Jewish and Mosaic practices that are going on here in the millennial kingdom. But the idea that we want to gather here is that God sets up a regular form of worship for the people to follow. And so we want, in our lives, we want to have a regular way of worship. So there's daily worship of, sac- of services and sacrifices, but there's also uh, regular worship of they recognize that once a month there's a special worship service that we do on the new moon. Um, and so they're, they're, they're doing what they do on the new moons, the Sabbath, Sabbaths, and then there's Jewish festivals. There's annual things that they do as well. And so this is not just one feast a year, but weekly observation as well as monthly dedication. Okay. So there's this regular way of their, their worshiping God. Um, they're attending on, on, uh, on Saturday, on the Sabbath, they're going for the new moons and then, uh, they're, they're showing up for the festivals. And so within the Christian church, we recognize that like we, we come to church on Sundays. Uh, there's some other times during the month where we may gather. There's a Wednesday night thing. And, you know, there's, there's these 
areas that we've set up ways for there to be a pattern of regular worship that we engage in. And then we have our annual festivals, right? Like where we would celebrate Christmas and Easter, those types of things. Thanksgiving could be a time that you dedicate to thankfulness towards God for what he's doing, right? So you could have a feast where you actually honor God for giving you what you have. Take Thanksgiving and turning into something that, that is for him, right? And so you have these regular ways of worship. Now, the next thing we see here is that there's a relational aspect to this as well. In verse 12, when the prince makes a free will offering, whether a burnt offering or a fellowship offering, as a free will offering to the Lord, the gate that faces east is to be open for him. He is to offer his burnt offering or fellowship offering just as he does on the Sabbath day. Then he will go out and the gate will be closed after he leaves. You are to offer an unblemished one-year-old male lamb as a daily burnt offering to the Lord. You will offer it every morning. You are also to prepare a grain offering every morning along with it, three quarts, one-third of a gallon of oil to moisten the flour, a grain offering for the Lord. This is a permanent statute to be observed regularly. They will offer a lamb and a grain offering and the oil every morning as a burnt offering. Okay, so you have, again, a con verses 13 through 15 are kind of a continuation of that daily regular worship. But uh, sandwiched in the middle of all that are verses 12. Uh, verse 12 talks about a free will offering. And so this is the relational side of this where the prince, uh, he has a special time of spontaneous desire for God. Uh, this free will offering. Uh, he, he says, man, I, I just have a longing to honor God for who he is and what he's done. I just recognize uh, his awesome power and presence in my life. And I, and I, I don't know, it's Tuesday, but I just really feel like worshiping. And so he goes and he offers this free will gift. And so there's this relational worship where God, uh, he draws us near to him. And because we are near to him, there's this spontaneous, gosh, I just want to worship you for who you are and what you've done. Okay. Now, the next part of this in verses 16 through 18, uh, it talks about the transfer of royal lands, okay? So it says, this is what the Lord God says. If the prince gives a gift to each of his sons as inheritance, it will belong to his sons. It will become their property by inheritance. But if he gives a gift from his inheritance to one of his servants, it will belong to the servant until the year of freedom or the year of jubilee. So every 50 years, the Jewish people would celebrate this. When it will revert to the prince, his inheritance belongs only to his sons and, and it is theirs. The prince must not take any of the people's inheritance, evicting them from their property. He is to provide an inheritance for his sons from his own property so that none of my people will be displaced from his own property. And we're going to read, well, we're not going to read, but I'm going to tell you in verse, uh, in chapter 47 and 48, he divides the land and he gives a portion to the prince. And so he's telling them that the prince can only give a portion of the land that God allots to him to his sons. He can't take it from other people. Okay. And so this, what God is setting up here is he's setting up righteous and just just worship, living in a way that honors God and demonstrates his ways. Okay, that's what he's doing here. The prince's children could keep the land that was given to them out of the allotment that he had. Uh, but if he gave land from that allotment to somebody else, it would be returned to him every 50 years. And the goal behind this was to keep corruption from working its way into the people and the nation. The land belongs to God, not the people. And people left to themselves will use the land for their own benefit instead of the benefit of the people, okay? He recognizes that greed infects humanity, and so God puts measures in place to stop it from growing. That's what's going on here. He's saying that greed and corruption and covetousness will not be a part of his kingdom, okay? And so we look at that and we go, gosh, I think I live in a place there where greed and covetousness um, runs pretty rampant. Um, but 
very clearly this is not supposed to be a part of my life. That righteous and just worship will show up and that I will not want what others have. I will not take what others have. I will not be greedy and hoard what I have instead of using it to bless others. But instead, I'll recognize that the allotment that I have has been given to me by God. I'll use it to bless my family. But then I'm going to also use it to bless those around me. And so you have this just and righteous worship of stewardship of the land taking place. And so God, he very much is important to him that we recognize that what we have is an allotment from him. We use it to care for our family and then we use it to bless those around us. Okay. Each man is to work with his own hands so that he will have something to give to everyone around him. That's the idea here is that God created us for work and he created us to steward well the talents, gifts, and possessions that he's given us so that we can bless the people around us. And so that is righteous and just worship of God that we approach our lives and our work and our property through the lens of he has given this to me so that I can bless others, not hoard it for myself. Okay, that is very countercultural to the country that we live in. Very countercultural to the materialistic world that we live in. We have what we have in order to steward it to bless others, not build it up for ourselves. Okay, so he draws that out with the transfer of the royal lands. The next thing that he's going to talk about is the temple kitchens, and I'm sure you're just so excited for me to read this part. Um, Tell me about the kitchens, Kurt. Um, Then he brought me through the entrance that was on the side of the gate into the priest's holy chambers, which faced north. I saw a place there at the far western end. He said to me, this is the place where the priests will boil the guilt offering and the sin offering and where they will bake the grain offering so that they do not bring them into the outer court and transmit holiness to the to the people. That, that language is used several times, transmit holiness to the people. What he's saying there is, he don't, I, I don't want you to wander out with this stuff so that people get some sort of superstitious idea that because they were close to the things that were holy, that they were holy. Multiple times in the scripture, and most of the Levitical law is about teaching the people to not be superstitious. Um, and so God is not looking for superstitious followers who do a handful of things and think that God will bless them because of it, or if they have the, the right uh, possessions that God will, will care for them, but instead he wants people who are in relationship with him. So superstition should not have a part of Christianity or vice versa. Okay. And then he says in verse 21, next he brought me into the outer court and led me past its four corners. There was a separate court in each of its corners. In the four corners of the outer court, they were enclosed courts, 70 feet long by 51 and a half feet wide. All four corner areas are the same dimensions. There was a stone wall around the inside of them, around all four of them, with ovens built into the base of the walls on all four sides. And when I see that, I can only picture just like a really cool backyard with lots of pizza ovens, and I get hungry. Um, I don't know if you guys are distracted easily, but I was. Verse 24, then he said to me, "These these are the kitchens where those who minister at the temple will cook the people's sacrifices. And so what he's doing here is he's, and he's been doing this throughout this, but he's drawing out a ritual form of worship. These are patterns of worship set aside for special times of year, but also for the daily worship that was going on. So these kitchens, they're there for both regular and uh, seasonal worship, but he's setting up rituals. And what ritual means is a series of acts carried out in a prescribed order. Now, we are Western Americans, and someone telling us how to worship is like, don't touch me, right? You are part of a non-denominational church. You're probably not at one of the larger churches because they do this. They say, here's our rituals. Step one, two, three, four, five. Um, And 
a lot of us don't like that, okay? And so what, what I think is important for us is to recognize that there's room in the new covenant for you to set up your patterns of worship. But I'll tell you this, if you do not set up conscious patterns of worship, you will unconsciously worship the wrong thing. And that is why he sets these up. He sets up patterns of worship because he doesn't want his people unconsciously worshiping the wrong thing. Okay, And if you go back into the book of Ezekiel, one of his major problems that he had with the Jewish people was that they had taken the temple and they had, they had they'd gotten rid of the ritual worship and they had inserted idols into the temple. And so in chapter 11 of Ezekiel, God's presence leaves the temple because they're not worshiping him anymore. They're not following these patterns of worship that adore him. Instead, they're following patterns of worship that look towards the world and its creation for fulfillment. Okay. And so they, they lose that. So, uh, these patterns of worship in, in Ezekiel, they're very Jewish and mosaic in nature. Uh, odds are none of us will ever be a part of this. Um, and, and, and so, but you can, the problem with ritual worship is it can become meaningless. You do the same thing over and over again without thought. And you see in Amos chapter five that God says, he actually tells them to stop it. Just stop doing the worships. He says, I, 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 I can't even listen to your songs. I stop up my ears when you're playing them. I don't want to hear what you have to say because you're pretending to worship me, but you're not actually giving your life to me. Okay. And so, uh, ritual forms of worship can become meaningless, but they don't have to be, um, I was over at Sierra Lutheran a couple years ago and they were doing a very Lutheran uh, candle lighting ceremony at one of the, uh, uh, one of the chapels that was over there. And the, the imagery that was in it was beautiful. I mean, it was just beautiful. They told me to preach on a passage. I don't remember what it was. I got up and I was like, do you guys know what you just watched? And I just explained the imagery that was in the candle lighting ceremony that they did. It was, it was wonderful. But for the people sitting there, they're like, yeah, we do this every year. Cool. They lit a candle, you know, it, it can lose its meaning. And that's something you have to watch out for, but they don't have to lose their meaning. What Ezekiel is doing here again is he's making the point that systems of worship and the prioritizing the meaning behind them of loving God and loving people is very important. Okay. So uh, there's a clear link in scripture between our worship of, of God and transformation, life transformation. If, if you want to experience the transformation that comes through the gospel, a lifestyle that worships Jesus is, is really important. You're not, it's not going to happen by accident. It's not a happenstance thing. It's a conscious choice of our will to say, I will set up patterns in my life that worship Jesus. He's actually prescribed some of them. I could just follow them, but he also leaves room for me to have my individual relationship with him, but he also gathers us together so that we can scatter as well. So if relationship with God and worship of him is, is paramount in transformation, I, I have some startling stats for you. It made me wonder what is going on with the church in America. So a study conducted in Gallup in March of 20, 2021 found that for the first time since they started tracking church affiliations of Americans in 1937, below 50% of the population are a part of a church. So for the first time in decades. Um, and that number, the number of people that were part of a church stood above 70% for six decades and decline, has declined steadily since 1990. That's nationwide. Below, it was like 48% of people are a part of a church. If you look at numbers just on the West Coast, it's under a third of people are a part of a church. Um, if you look at it in our general area that we live in, it's actually under 10% of the, of the people that you run into. So less than one out of 10 people that you run into at the parade are a part of a church, okay? So what's happening is the church is losing its influence. 
Church affiliation by generation reveals an even more shocking trend. So people born before 1946, two out of three of them, 66%, attend church. Those born between 1946 and 1964, 58%. Those born between 1965 and 1980, 50%. Those born between 1981 and 1996, 36% are a part of a church. And so what you have is you have generational decline in people being a part of the church. Generation by generation, the population is more and more in love with the world than they are with the world, with the word. Uh, people are more and more in love with the world than they are with the world. So, so truth is not being taught and lives, I said it wrong twice. <laughs> Somebody else wanna say it? Word. word, word, there it is, yep. <laughs> Generation by generation, the population is more in love with the world than with the word of God. Truth is not being taught. Yay! I should have picked a word that started with not a W. Um, truth is not being taught and lies have filled in the gap. And this is what you have to recognize, is that truth is not being taught and lies have filled in the gap. Uh, this is so much true that the up upcoming generations are so con confused about truth that they can't tell the difference between male and female. And I'm not saying that to bank a joke. That's like a literal statement. The upcoming generations are so confused about truth that the difference between male and female is lost. Okay, this is one of the first teachings within the scriptures that God created the male and female. And so I'm not saying that to denigrate the, the upcoming generations. It's to recognize that there are people who are so far from the truth of the word of God that, they, that that's confusing. Okay, that, that's, that's confusing. And so what we recognize within that is that the church now more than ever has a huge job in front of us. The American church has a very big job in front of us. The odds of the younger generations coming to belief in Jesus, uh, the, the, the odds are stacked against them. And so the American church, there's more work to be done than there ever has been. And the lifestyle that we exhibit as followers of Jesus, uh, we now have more friends, family, and neighbors who know nothing of Jesus than has been the case in the history of the United States. And so you go, okay, there's, the, there's, the, there's, a, there's an issue right there. Truth is not making its way out and lies are filling in the gaps. So the church's job is huge, but the, the news on authentic worshipers of Jesus is not good either. And so as we dig into this, according to Pew Research, uh, they found that out of Christians, uh, those who profess to be Christians, only 44% go to church on a weekly basis. 18% go once a month, 20% go a few times a year, and the remaining 18% go seldom or never. And so you have only a small portion of the population that would claim to be a follower of Jesus. And then you have an even smaller portion of the population that attends church and worships God. And then if we dig into the numbers a little bit further, it's actually single digits in the population that would affirm a biblical worldview that would say, when I look at the Bible, there's truth in there. I don't turn to the world for truth. I turn to the, I'm going to do it, the word for truth. Okay. And, and instead that's not going on. Okay. And so there's this there's, this, there's a problem in our culture, but then there's also a problem in the church. And so what you see very clearly is that as the normative Christian experience, right? The pattern Ezekiel is offering here is that daily, weekly, monthly, and annual worship are necessary for observing God's presence in our, 
in our lives, and that worship and life change are clearly linked throughout the Bible. If you don't believe me, go to Exodus chapter uh, 20 and read the first commandment. And, and if you don't believe that, go to John chapter 15 and see what Jesus says about worship and life change, okay? Um, yet based on the numbers, the, the percentage of self-proclaimed Christians who prioritize the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer is remarkably low. And so, the clear point here is there's little wonder that Christianity has lost prominence in our land. Most Christians do not prioritize worshiping Jesus, and thus most Christians are not experiencing life change. The normative Christian experience in the, in the U.S. is not life-changing, it's not life-giving, and it's not remotely attractive to the outside world looking in. I get it, you go to church, but you don't look any different than the guy who screams at his neighbor. Like, you, I, I get it, you go to church, but your marriage is falling apart just like mine. Um, I, you, you go to church, but you, 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 you denigrate your children just like I do. You go to church, but you're more concerned about politics uh, than anything else, just like me. You don't look different. And so why would I want to be a part of that? And, and so, uh, you know, in fact, one of the things that I think we're known for as Christians is uh, squabbling amongst each other. We're, we're better known for that than we are the king in the kingdom. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was, I was talking and there were two phone calls that came in. One was from a person who said they weren't going to attend the church anymore because we had signs up on the door that were asking people to wear masks. Not going to attend a church where they have signs up that ask people to wear masks. And then we got a call from another person who said that they weren't going to attend the church anymore because when they came in, no one was wearing a mask. Satan loves to deceive, lie, and divide. And he's taken this little thing that we put over our face, or don't put over our face, and he says, watch this. Watch these guys fight with each other. This will be funny. Watch me divide these people who claim to love Jesus and be about the kingdom of God. They're going to fight with each other over something so insignificant it will blow your mind. And then I talked to somebody last night who said they haven't been to church in a long time because no one's wearing a mask and uh, they live with their mom and they didn't want to get their mom sick. She's in a stage of life where it just didn't make sense for her to be around that. And so her heart was to care for her mom. So her choice is to watch online, which I think is a good choice for her. And so what we're failing to do is we're failing to say, I don't know what your story is, but I care enough to find out. Because if we follow Jesus, we'll care about people. If we, if we follow Jesus, we'll learn the individual story rather than throwing a blanket statement on top of them. And so this is what's going on in the church, though, is we're, I mean, we're so easily distracted. Um, it seems to me that Christians will fight over, will fight for anything except for the king and his kingdom. And so our priorities are off. And that's one of the things that, G, that Ezekiel is revealing in this chapter um, is that if our priorities are on, will care about worshiping God and, and loving people. This is a morning of distractions. <laughs> so, uh, at chapter 46, as you look at that, what does your regular relational manner of worshiping Jesus, of God look like? What is it for you? What is your regular relational worship with God? Um, can you think of an occasion where you had a spontaneous desire to honor God and worship him? What were the circumstances? Uh, for me, it's a moment where I have peace when in the past I wouldn't have. Where I, where I treat someone with kindness, where in the past I wouldn't have. Where I, where I seek understanding of someone's story, where in the past I wouldn't have. When I experience the life transformation that comes from knowing him, those are moments where I'm like, God, thank you. I'm so glad I'm not who I used to be. They are too. 
And then the last question, or the, the fourth question there is, um, uh, did Jesus' words from John uh, chapter 4, 13 and 14 ring true in your life? Has Jesus become a well of water springing up for eternal life in you? Does his life flow out of you and into the lives around you? And then what does that look like? And the reason I ask that question is because in chapter 47, uh, Ezekiel tells that there's a river that flows out of the temple and that this river flows out and it gets bigger, wider and wider, deeper and deeper as it goes. And eventually it flows into the Dead Sea. And as it reaches the Dead Sea, it actually turns water that is, right now it's six times saltier than the ocean. You could float in it, but you're not going to find fish in it. Um, and, and it turns it to fresh water. And he says that every kind of fish that's living in the Mediterranean will live in the Dead Sea and fishermen will gather around it. And there'll be uh, uh, trees lining the bank of this river and the Dead Sea will have trees. Just everything is transformed from this water of this, this living water that flows out of the temple. And Jesus then he echoes that in his conversation with the woman at the well. The woman at the well asks him, she, you know, he asks her for a drink of water. And then he says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink of water and I'd give it to you. And it would, sw it would, it would uh, spring up inside of you into eternal life that flows out of you and into the lives of the people around you. And so that's what this river is a picture of. It's a picture of the influence of God's people and the, the life-giving uh, spirit that he is then moves out across the land and brings life to all those places. And so that's where the, the point is, is that where life is, is where God's presence is. Okay. So there should be life in us because God's presence is in us. And so that's the first thing is that we're this life giving water. The second thing we see in chapter 47 is that the, the land becomes larger than before the boundaries of God's people and their influence grows. Um, as God, ex as God expands his influence, uh, through his people, others then are blessed by it. And so that's the idea that's going on here is that the land is bigger than it was before. He lists the dimensions of it, uh, in chapter 47, but as people are in relationship with God. And as uh, this life giving water is flowing out of them, the boundaries of their influence are growing. Okay. And so that should be true of our lives as well. You could look at your life and you say, okay, are the boundaries of my influence stagnant? Are the boundaries of my influence for Jesus shrinking or are the boundaries of my influence growing? And if the boundaries of your influence for Jesus are stagnant or shrinking, uh, I think the point here within this is that Ezekiel would point us back to, you need to worship God. Start there. Start with worshiping Jesus. Don't go, go try and do something, but start with worshiping him. And as you worship him and his life is made abundant in you and it flows out of you, you're going to bless the, pe the people that are in your life. Um, chapter 48, there's two different things that are going on there. The first one is that uh, God sets the boundaries of these 12 tribes. And if you read that, you'll know why I'm not reading it. It's very repetitive and redundant. Um, but there's, there's 13 tribes. Some people combine two of them into one. Uh, it doesn't really matter. But God divides the land up between the tribes. Uh, and, and the point here is that there's no squabbling over who has how much. Rather, just trust in God and his plans. Uh, the nation of Israel, uh, this mattered to Ezekiel because the nation of Israel split of the three great kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And then the nation splits largely over land and money. Okay. And so he's saying, I'm not going to do this again, but I'm going to set your boundaries. Um, and, and so we're not going to fight over these things anymore. There's not going to be squabbling over who has how much, um, but rather there's going to be trust in God and his plans. And then the, 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 the book ends and it seems almost anticlimactic, um, in, uh, in the final verses there, 30 through 35, he describes the, the, the walls and the gates of the new city. Um, and then in 35, it says, the perimeter of the city will be six miles 
and the name of the city on that day will be the Lord is there. And then he says, I'm done writing. Okay, that's it for me. Um, the Lord is there. And that seems kind of anticlimactic, but if you understand the, the, the walk through the book of Ezekiel, uh, you have the reason, you have God's presence leaving Jerusalem in chapter 11, and then you have all the reasons why God is going to judge them, and then you have the judgment take place, the judgment of foreign nations for bringing the idols into the land. And so they're exiled from their land. They don't have their land. They don't have their, their temple. They don't have any of their influence, uh, power, position, money. It's all gone. Like they've lost it all. They're just captive to the Babylonians. And so Ezekiel points forward to a time when they'll re-enter the land. God's presence will be there. And, and it's sort of a, a renewal of everything as it should be for the people of Jerusalem. And that's what's going on when he says that. And so as, as you look at this, you know, kind of the question is, um, if someone were to look at, at your life, would they say the Lord is there? Um, if, they were to, if they were to come in your home and have a meal with you, would they walk away thinking, the Lord is there? Um, if somebody were to watch how you interact with your spouse, would they say, the Lord is there? If somebody watched you parent your children, would they say, the Lord is there? If they looked at your work ethic and the way that you carry out your day within your job, would they say, the Lord is there? Look at how hard that person works. And they're not really being rewarded for it. I mean, they get a paycheck, but they haven't had it. Like, it's not going the way that they think it should, but they keep working. And the reason they do is because they're working unto the Lord. Look at, look at the way that person treats uh, their coworkers, and they've got coworkers that speak ill about them, and coworkers that say negative things, and, and they, they always respond in kindness. They always respond with compassion. Uh, I've never met somebody that was so good at understanding someone else's story. They don't, they don't prejudge them. Um, they don't hold them down, but instead, this person, they, they learn their story, they understand who they are, and they care. Man, the Lord is there. And so that's kind of the question that this book leaves us with, is, is the Lord, if someone looked at our life, would they say, the Lord is there? And that should be challenging to us in a lot of ways. And I think that scripture will always do this. Scripture will always do these two things. It will always challenge us, and we should always be encouraged by it. Because when they look at my life, they don't need to say, is Kurt like the Lord? They just need to say, is he there? Is the Lord a part of Kurt's life? He's not perfect. Did you hear him try and pronounce world earlier? <laughs> He's not perfect. But God's clearly in his life. He doesn't have everything together. Uh, in, in fact, there's a lot of places where he seriously needs some growth. Like, there are areas where, where God is working on him. It's very obvious. But, but he's there. And that's the joy of the Christian life. It's not that I've been made perfect. It's that the God is in my life. The Lord is here and he is perfecting me. He is transforming me. And that's why we worship him. It's sort of a, a cycle and it spins. And you say, God, I, I worship you for who you are and what you've done and how you transformed me. And then he transforms you a little bit more. And it just keeps going. God, I worship you for who you are and what you've done and how you've transformed me. And then he transforms you a little bit more. And it just keeps spinning all of our lives. When you get off of that place where you're worshiping him and you start worshiping something else, transformation stops. And so if you're stagnant in life, if you're not growing, in your relationship with God, there's a very strong possibility that you're worshiping something other than him. 
And the cool part is, is just like the nation of Israel, he's willing to step into your life and say, I love you enough to discipline you and get you back in relationship with me. And there are many of us who are in that relationship with him here this morning. And man, I just encourage you, worship him for who he is and what he's done and be transformed. And worship him for who he is and what he's done and be transformed. Just do it over and over and over again. Keep your eyes on him. And then there are some of us here this morning that you don't know him. Uh, you, you, don't, you, you don't yet know him, but I want to tell you that that's who he is. He's someone that cares so much about you that he, that he entered the course of humanity. He entered humanity with us. He took on flesh. His name was Jesus, and he died on a cross for the consequences of your sins, for your wrongdoing, for your idolatry, your worship of created things over him. He died for that, and he redeems you out of that, and he purchases you with his blood, and that's why his death was necessary, to purchase you out of, out of slavery and, and into his kingdom, and he loves you so much that that purchase is complete. There's nothing for you to do other than say, thank you for making me a part of your family. I trust you. And as you make that statement of, of you thank him and you trust him, he then raises you up and he changes you completely. <laughs> you know, you're, you're a brand new creation in Christ. And then he molds you the rest of your life into something that you'd never be on your own. And so it's all about God's grace and his action in your life. And that's why we worship him. God, thank you for giving to me what I don't deserve. God, thank you for withholding the punishment that should have fallen on me, but you put it on Jesus instead. You just, you just thank him for who he is and what he's done over and over again. And as you do that, he transforms you. And you look back over the course of your life and you recognize just how different he's made you. But it all starts with worshiping him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you that you are a part of our lives. I thank you that you are a, a part of the story of humanity, uh, that you entered into this world and, and uh, you, you died on a cross for the consequences of my sin, the consequences of our sin. You, you paid the penalty that was due and you redeemed me out of, out of being a slave to sin and you've made me a, a child of the living God. And for that, God, we worship you. For that, I worship you. And, and I recognize over the course of my life, God, just how much you have transformed me. Um, and uh, <laughs> I think you gave us a bunch of distractions this morning because that is life, isn't it? We are easily distracted from who you are and what you've done. And so when those distractions come up, God, may we keep our eyes fixed on you, continue to worship you for who you are and what you've done and experience the life change that comes from knowing you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we did it. We finished the book of Ezekiel, and that means we get to start something new. Since the beginning of 2020, anxiety, depression, and unhealthy habits have been on the rise. Over the next four weeks, Don and I will share with you God's heart to be with you, to give you truth, and for us to care for each other. Join us next week as we discuss these topics in a new series called Looking Up. Today, you've been listening to our series, Kingdom Come, as we wrapped up in the book of Ezekiel. We pray that you are both challenged and encouraged by God's word today. Join us again next week as we start our new series called Looking Up. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we are so glad that you are a part of the family.